kind of going to be over all over this morning a little bit. Uh, when you are tackling a topic like Christ alone, it's hard to go to one passage because the whole of the Bible is about Christ alone. So we're going to bounce around a little, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 4, looking at verses 8 through 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, excuse me, I lost my place, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, and, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This morning, we come to consider Jesus. Uh, and Jesus is a man who cannot be historically ignored. And it doesn't matter who you are, you cannot deny the historical reality of Jesus. You can't even refute it. There's no one out there who will say, Jesus it was a made-up person. There's too many sources to say that Jesus wasn't real. And you can't even say that from Jesus sprung what we call today Christianity. This is also undisputable. The problem becomes when we try to answer the question, what do we do with the claims of Jesus? What do we do with the things that Jesus said and taught? And, and we might, and a lot of people, love the teaching of Jesus. They like the things he said. But what about his claims of deity? Is that something he actually claimed? Or was that merely something that his followers applied to him after the fact? We also know that Jesus is important to us. If you're in this building, I would assume, for the most part, that Jesus is important to you. But why is he important to us? Do the stories that Jesus tell, do the stories we hear told about Jesus simply make us feel good? Have they become some sort of emotional touchstone, some sort of safety net for us? And so we too have to come to grips with what do we believe about this man named Jesus? Who is he? What has he done? Are his claims still important today? Why was it such a big deal for the reformers to focus on Christ, Christ alone? The reality is this, that at the center of all of scripture, the reformers saw one person, namely Jesus. Christ alone is what scripture is all about. He was at the center of the entire Reformation movement from first to last, from the very beginning of scripture to the very end of scripture. It was all about Jesus. 
Faith alone is only faith if it is in Christ alone. And grace alone is only grace if it is given to us through Christ alone. He is the source of our hope. He is nothing less than the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. The stone, as we see here, rejected by the builders, by the leaders in the church, these Pharisees and Sadducees, and and now has become the cornerstone, the thing that holds it all in place. So as we come today, as we consider Christ alone, we'll consider three things. He is the only Savior. He is the only sacrifice. And he is the only mediator, the only Savior, the only sacrifice, and the only mediator. So let us look at the first. He is the only Savior. Uh, This is something that Jesus himself claims. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. I would encourage you to note the exclusive claims of Jesus. And in essence, Jesus is saying, hey, it's me alone, right? I am the way. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only light. Nobody comes. There is no other way to come to the Father except through me. Now, there's a problem with this statement for much of the world. Because what Jesus has just done is claimed an absolute. There is no other way to God but through me. And the contemporary world, and I think the world along the way, to be real, uh, rejects this. And they reject this because it is an acclaim to exclusivity. In a world that loves to be relative, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. A statement like, there is no other way to the Father but through me, cannot abide. Because that that means that what we feel, what we want, what we desire does not come into the picture. There is no final or absolute truth anymore in much of the world. And if you claim to have that sort of truth, you're arrogant, you're foolish, you're a bigot. You can't claim this sort of truth. But the reality is for the Christian, as we come to the word of God, as we see scripture unfold, we believe that God has revealed himself to us through the prophets, through the apostles, through his very word. And this word reveals for us a plan of salvation. From the very fall, we see this being described for us. From the very get-go, from the time Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and Jesus comes to them in the garden and they say, you know, we did, we did wrong. He goes, okay, here's your punishment. And tells them his punishment. Both of them their punishment. But then he says, look, from you, Eve, from your seed, is going to come one, the seed of the woman. And this seed will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. It's a promise, right? That he would send one who would defeat the devil. We call this, here's my fancy seminary language, and Rusty, you can just ignore it. 
the, the proto-evangelion, and bro, proto meaning first, evangelion mean, mean, evangelion meaning gospel, the first gospel. From Genesis 3, we get the first gospel. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He is the savior of the world. He will be the savior of the world and is the savior of the world. And the call now for the Christian, those who believe in Christ alone, is that we must proclaim Christ and urge others to taste and see him, to investigate his life, to investigate his teaching, to see and consider the death of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do some of that this morning. What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus teach concerning himself? Because when the crowds heard Jesus, do you know how they responded? In John 7, 46, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. When the crowds were confronted with Jesus, when they heard his sermons, when they listened to the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are something that are very interesting. We went through the Beatitudes, we went through Matthew. But do you understand that the Beatitudes were not like, we, we, we look at the Beatitudes now and go, Oh, yeah, the humble, the meek, that's all good things. Those were foreign concepts when Jesus was teaching them. It was not a good, cool thing to be humble and meek and so on and so forth. And when they heard him, they were like, what is he talking about? They never heard one teach like this man. Even as he tells them this, this is the description of a godly character, to be poor in spirit, to be meek and humble, and to show mercy. Jesus taught them something different. He begins to show them the mission of the church through his teaching. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. He teaches us something about the church. The church is to have a sanctifying influence on the world around it. He begins to teach us an ethic that's motivated by love, that's not focused on man, but is focused on pleasing God. True piety aims to please God in all things. Not something we do boastfully, but we do meekly and humbly. This is what Jesus taught. This is what he claimed. He even taught us how to pray. This is what we just got finished doing, saying the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus came, he claimed many things. He taught, excuse me, he taught many things. And as we're confronted with the teaching of Jesus, we're confronted with the reality of who he is. Because Jesus... did not hem and haw. He believed himself to be God, the son of man, the son of God. And he makes these claims. He tells us uh, many different things. He tells us about sin and how we are living in sin and how we must have repentance from that sin. That sin has created confusion and separation from God. But even as he reveals that problem, he reveals the solution 
Matthew 11:28 28 and 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He promises, promised for those who were being weighed down under the burden of sin that he would give them rest. In essence, he comes and says this, the world's failed you. The world and its, its promises have failed you. They're empty. There's nothing there. You have tasted of its pleasures. You've tasted of its possessions. Yet you are still unfulfilled and you are still unsatisfied. And that's because you need me. Not me. I'm speaking in the Jesus. Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Your soul longs to have its hunger filled and its thirst quenched. And Jesus says, I am the one who can do this. I am the bread of life. Come to me. If I can give you a cup of water that will make you never quench or thirst again. He said, I am the light of the world in John 8. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light, the light of life. Over and against the confusion and the, and the empty claims of this world, Jesus comes and says, do you want truth? Do you want certainty of the knowledge of salvation? Then come to me. So he teaches us about himself. He teaches us about how we're to live before him. He, he makes claims about how he can come and give us relief. But we also see that through his example, through the whole of his life, he demonstrates what it is to be a fault, to, to be obedient, to be the savior that we need. And you see him interacting with ordinary people as he trained his apostles, as he responds to his opponents and performs miracles. In Jesus' life, we see a remarkable ministry as he displays the evidence for his claims. Over and over again, the Pharisees were asking Jesus, how do we know? How do we know you're really the Savior? How do we know you're really the Messiah? And Jesus never really answered him outright. Do you know why Jesus never really answered him outright? Because they knew what they were looking for. They knew all the signs of the things that they were supposed to be looking to see if this was really the Christ. And they were ignoring them. Jesus basically came in the room when he was like, hey, look, I can make the blind see. And it was like he came in and and he had his Jesus badge and he went, "That see that? And they saw it and they were like, yeah, but how do we really know? And the reality is they didn't want to know. But if we look at the remarkable ministry of Jesus, we have to be confronted with something. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God because he said so. The other evidence about him has convinced them, that is the Christian, that he is neither a lunatic or a quack. As we see the evidence of Jesus in scripture, we see that he is who he says he is. As we encounter the Jesus of the Bible, we hear the voice of our shepherd calling to us. 
Jesus, and this is the, the funny thing is, at the end of the day, while nobody would claim that Jesus was an invented person, they claim he is a real person, what the claims that, that were made about Jesus simply could not be invented. In fact, it simply doesn't make sense. If I'm in the first century and I'm a Jewish man and I'm like, okay, I'm going to create a Messiah figure. Everything that they would have had chose to do would have been counterintuitive to everything in the culture. Like if you're trying to create a religion that people will flock to, they picked all the wrong things. The unattractive things. Hey, come to me. And uh, when you come to me, you're probably going to suffer. And many of you will die. Oh, okay, sign me up. No, right? We don't, that's not what we say. That's not what we say. Jesus comes and says, hey, look, power isn't the important thing. In fact, I want you to love your enemies. And if your enemy comes after you and he's, he, he wants to harm you, then you know what? Just turn the other cheek. Let him, let him slap you again. And you're like, wait, what? It doesn't make sense for Jesus to be invented, his teachings to be invented. They were making something up that would have been so hard to believe. It simply wasn't the case. Jesus was who he said he was. And because of this, as we come to our second point, we see that he is the only sacrifice. Jesus is the only sacrifice. His death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can forgive sins. He is the only one who is able to pay the debt that we owed. Because here's the thing. Again, we go to scripture. What does scripture say about sin? The wages, wages being something that you get for your work, the wages of sin... So at, you've worked your two-week two period. It's about time to get paid. All right, here, let me pay you for your sins. Death. The wages of sin is death. What you deserve for your sins is death. Therefore, forgiveness requires death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The death of Jesus was substitutionary. Jesus comes in and he is our substitute. He takes our place. He died for us in our place as our representative. Our punishment was put upon him because here's the reality. Because of your sin, because of how you have lived, you have earned death. The wages of sin is death. There is a penalty that you deserve. Jesus' death was penal. The penalty for breaking the law of God was placed upon him. And you can go all over the Bible and, and see this. I'm going to hit three real quick. Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. <coughs> Note, likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The sinless one, that is Jesus Christ, became sin for us. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Eight thir- Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christ died. Christ came and lived the sinless life and died that we may have reconciliation. We can go to Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. In the cross, we see the justice of God being satisfied on the person of Jesus. And in this way, because this penalty comes upon Jesus, the Son of God himself, God remains just even as he justifies sinners. That is, he forgives sins without compromising justice. Lovingly, Christ bore our sins. He took our penalty. This cross is this wonderful, beautiful thing where we see the salvation of sinners, where we see our rescue. Christ suffered for you. Your sins were put on him on the cross, and he gladly bore it. Out of obedience to his father, out of love for you, our sins were nailed to him on the cross. And this was no halfway measure. It's not like he went halfway. It was complete. Hebrews 7, 26, for indeed... For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, he offered up himself. See, the priests in the Old Testament, they had a problem. They were daily Sacrificing, And then first they had to sacrifice for their sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't have this issue. He didn't have any sins. And so when he came and sacrificed sins for us, it was perfect. His work was finished. And because he is the perfect sacrifice, that makes him the perfect mediator between God and man. And that's our third and final point. The only mediator. A mediator is someone who intercedes on behalf of someone else or between two parties. Uh, You talk about in different law cases, you go to mediation. Let's see if we can work this out. Let's find a happy medium. But the problem here is this. God cannot tolerate sinners. God, who is perfectly holy, cannot tolerate sinners. Therefore, we need a mediator, someone who can bridge the gap between sinners and God. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Through Jesus alone, he alone, through his mediation comes the blessings of redemption. He alone justifies, he alone forgives, he alone sanctifies, he alone enables us to be adopted because of what he did on the cross. And he is now, even now, right now, this moment, seated at the right hand of the Father, doing what for you? Making intercession, mediating, continue to mediating to for you so that you can say i can approach the throne of god why because christ is sitting at the right hand making intercession mediating for you on your behalf his death paid the penalty for our sins christ's death accomplished for us our salvation his resurrection ensured that what he accomplished would be applied This must impact us. Every part of us. Christ is our priestly mediator. And so what are the implications of this? As the reformers saw this, they were like, this does not add up. Because they were being taught, you need earthly men to mediate between you and God. You need to go to them to offer confession. And Jesus says, no, confessions are not made through the clergy. We go directly to God. Ministers are there and they're important. They should be uh, preaching. They should be teaching. They should be leading in worship and administering the sacraments. But the Bible says you now, you right now are a royal priesthood. This idea of the priesthood of all believers, because Christ mediated for us, we no longer need a mediator. We, can, we have direct access to God. Without assistance, without any other intermediaries, we can go right now to God. So that as Jesus teaches you to pray, he says, pray like this. Our Father, pray directly to God. <clears throat> without assistance except for Jesus himself but it also has far reaching implications uh, for the dignity of all vocations because you are a believer or excuse me because you are a priest now since you are part of this royal priesthood everything that you do you are both accountable to before God but also you are to do unto the glory of God because, Christ, because of what Christ has worked in you. So there's no more this great distinction between the laity and the clergy. It disappears. In the Old Testament, yes, there was this distinction because the priests were playing this mediation role, which they were doing poorly. And it was meant to be poorly. But now that's gone. I am no more special than you. And you know that, of course if you know me because Christ is the only savior he's the only sacrifice he is the only mediator between God and man okay you've told us a lot of things about Christ so what at the end of the day we have to ask this question is Jesus 
who he says he is. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then we have to respond to him. So I ask you, if you're sitting in this room today, is Christ your only mediator? Because here's the reality. You may go to church. You may even bring yourself to church or maybe you're brought to church by uh, parents. But is Christ Jesus today your mediator? Do you believe that he has provided for you the only sacrifice for your sins? And, And I want you not to be deceived. Everyone responds to Jesus. Everyone. The question is, how do you respond to Jesus? Because you're either going to reject him or receive him. And the question is, where do you stand today? Have you made a personal commitment to the one and only Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ? And so for you children, I'm not saying, have you mimicked the faith of your parents? But have you made a personal commitment to Jesus? And to adults, I'm saying, are you just going through the motions of faith? Or have you made an actual personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your only Savior? Where do you stand today? Because I guarantee you, 100%, that the world is going to fail you. And when I say the world, I mean your family will fail you. Your friends will fail you. The possessions and riches of this world will fail you. But Jesus will not fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Come and know Jesus Christ. Know the hope and certainty that is found in him. Are you sure? Elders and deacons, I would like you to raise your hands. Raise your hands high so everyone can see them. Look around and look at these hands. If you're not sure, when this service is over, and I'm one of those too, go and see them. And say, I'm not sure. And you know what? If you're children, you don't have to be scared. Go and see them. And say, I don't know if Jesus is the only mediator of my life between me and God. I don't know if he has forgiven me of my sins. And I guarantee you, there's not a man in this room who raised their hand, or anyone else for that matter, who would not love to talk to you about Jesus. Know with certainty that Jesus is your Savior. But let me also say this. If you're sitting here today and you say, I I know, I know that Jesus is my Savior, then live like it. Because it's not enough to simply say, Jesus is my Savior. We have to live after him. We have to come again and again and again in faith and repentance. We have to be renewed each and every day in the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is all that I need. And stop living. If you claim Jesus is all you need, then stop living as if that's not true. Because I think sadly the church, myself included, at time lives as what I 
I've heard called, and, and I think is a good description, as practical atheist. And what do I mean by that? We claim that Christ is Lord of our life, and we claim that he is in control of all things, and we claim that he has provided for us all we need, and that we're to go and tell, and yet we live as if it's not true. On a daily basis, we, we fail in doing what he has called us to do, and, and in worshiping and giving him praise. Stop living as practical atheists. Be renewed in the reality of what Jesus has done for you. That he is really all that you need. Fittingly, as we come to the close of this service where we focus on Christ alone, we're about to sing the hymn, In Christ Alone. (laughs) Know who you are. That your sins held Jesus to the cross, not out of compulsion, not because he didn't have a choice. Your sins held Jesus to the cross out of his love for you. He stayed there until the work was finished in its completeness so that there is now No more that we have to do. He has done it all. Be renewed in the reality of who Jesus is. Daily bow the knee to him. And then go and tell. We're about to hit Christmas season. Christmas season, we always finish each service with go tell it on the mountain. And in some ways, it's a simple song, but I love it, particularly in the Christmas season, because that's what the Christmas season, it really is what all seasons, but that's what I I want you to get. Jesus came, yes, and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing, and and as we come here in the next few weeks over, you know, towards the end of the month, hopefully into December, actually, not before Thanksgiving after, we're going to put up decorations, and we love the decorations, but it's about going and telling That Jesus Christ was born. But not only that he was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he was the son of God, that he died a death so that we may have forgiveness of sins. Go and tell. Go and tell about Christ who has worked faith and grace in you as revealed to us in scripture. And next week, it was supposed to be this week, but we, you know, Hurricane Nate or whatever. Give glory to him. We're going to see that next week. It is in glory, the glory to God alone. Give him glory for all that he has done. Would your life, would my life be a reflection of the glory of Jesus, the glory of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that he has mediated for us forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray for any in, in this room that are not sure, that do not know you. Give them assurance of faith. Would you cause them to come either for the first time or again in humble obedience and reliance upon you and then move us all to growth and grace, to go and tell. We pray all this in his holy name.
Amen.